like being in, in high school and in college and in the military all in one, you know, because it's, it's a learning process and anything that you learn, you can teach it. Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. For the first time since at least 2008, the Stewart Detention Center in Lumpkin, Georgia is detaining women. In December, the facility had two immigrant women in custody. Today, it has 11. ICE said that it expects to detain women at Stewart for the foreseeable future. Stewart is one of the most deadly detention centers in the country. The Stewart Detention Center, operated by the private prison corporation CoreCivic, is infamous for abuse, medical neglect, and deaths of detainees. Guards routinely use excessive force against detainees. Incidents have occurred in which guards threw disabled, wheelchair-bound immigrants to the floor. Detaining women at Stewart means that CoreCivic would have to extend its healthcare services to sexual and reproductive healthcare and possibly prenatal care. For over a decade, some in ICE custody have reported delays in medical treatment and testing when their lives were possibly at risk. The shackling of pregnant women and the failure to offer basic and routine care. All that violates ICE's own standards for detaining women. Azadeh Shashahani, legal advocacy director of the organization Project South, said, quote, there is a pattern of death at Stewart and Congress does not seem to care that people are dying. The public should be very concerned that they are now going to start detaining women there." End quote. In one week, three deaths were reported at Donaldson Prison in Bessemer, Alabama. William Franklin McNabb, who was serving a life sentence, died on Thursday, February 4th. DeWitt Seawright, 77, died on February 8th while being held in solitary confinement. Seawright was serving a life sentence. On February 9th, David Lee Franklin died at the prison at the age of 31. Franklin, who was serving a 30-year sentence for possession of a controlled substance, was found unresponsive on the floor of his cell and was pronounced dead on the scene. Since 2016, opioids have killed 14,000 people incarcerated in Canadian jails and prisons. A recent article in The Conversation describes the critical need for more thorough opioid testing and treatment programs across the Canadian prison system. Canadian and international law mandates that incarcerated people receive the same standard of care as non-incarcerated people, opioid agonist therapy. Such therapy helps control cravings and withdrawals and helps diminish harms related to opioid usage, like HIV transmission and recidivism. 
The Conversation article stated that Canadian prison management avoids offering treatment for opioid addiction, avoiding responsibility by insisting that healthcare should be regulated by the nation's Department of Health and Wellness, not corrections. If a person was not receiving opioid agonist therapy before incarceration, that inmate would not be offered that treatment during their sentence. Those receiving treatment are subjected to daily strip searches. This humiliating practice, ostensibly preventing inmates from hoarding and selling their medication, discriminates against opioid users and makes them vulnerable to other inmates who use violence to steal their medicine. On February 8th, another violent death was confirmed at St. Clair Prison in Springville, Alabama. Corrections officials reported that Dexter Freeman died Monday from injuries sustained during what they called the inmate-on-inmate assault at the Springville prison. The department says an autopsy is set to be performed to determine the 38-year-old's cause of death. No additional details have been released, and the other prisoner allegedly involved in the attack hasn't been identified. The Innocence Project has just released some crucial facts on wrongful convictions and racism. First, more than half of death row exonerees are black. According to the Death Penalty Information Center, of the 174 people exonerated from death row since 1973, over half, about 53%, are black. And the states that still sentence the most people to death are the same states that have carried out the most lynchings. Second, innocent black people are seven times more likely to be wrongfully convicted of murder than innocent white people, and black people are more likely to be wrongfully convicted of murder when the victim is white. According to the National Registry of Exonerations, about a third, 31%, of black people exonerated from murder convictions were wrongfully convicted of killing someone white. Lastly, black people exonerated after wrongful murder convictions are 22% more likely to have cases involving police misconduct than white defendants with similar cases. In other words, racial discrimination plays a role in wrongful conviction before the case even makes it to the courtroom. Emily Mushukor, who we heard in last week's episode, speaking about COVID-19 protocols in his facility, returns this week to tell us more. He shares firsthand experiences of the gladiator fights and organizing against the shoe from the inside. Corcoran State Prison, where he's housed, was the first prison to develop the ultra-repressive shoe or secure housing unit. He also experienced gladiator fights and how they were used by guards to violently control prisoners. He also talks about using his time inside to educate other younger prisoners through reading groups on classics like George Jackson and lessons in language, Marxist theory, and more. Here he is. My name is Imwalimu Shakur, and I'm a new African revolutionary nationalist. I developed that ideology just like a lot of us once we came to prison. We study our history and develop our cultural practices, which is something that was prohibited when our ancestors came over here on those slave ships. So to learn all that, it will transform the way you think. And since we've done that, we believe that that's the correct way for all of us to be. I'm in Corcoran State Prison, which is now I'm in general population. 
and I was in the security housing unit was the SHU, which is where they put a lot of us political prisoners and those of us who, uh, you know, attempt to re-educate this new generation along the lines of their history. Well, I come from Los Angeles, California, you know, another inner city, and uh, what, you know, the gang culture trapped a lot of us, you know, because we didn't know, nothing, we didn't know nothing else, and doing the things that we did to survive, like selling drugs or, or burglaries or robberies or whatever we did, we, that was our way of life. Knowing that it could put us in prison, we weren't, you know, too much worried about that, but being a part of all that and leading me to prison, I found out that there were other people who were here, they were older, who had came and re-educated themselves, and it got my attention, just like being on the streets. So once that got my attention in, in prison, it was it, it, it was like opening a whole other world to me. You know, I, I never knew that we spoke a native tongue. I never knew that, you know, we, we had so much going on in our mother country where we were our land was rich with resources and, 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 you know, just the whole dynamics of Africa in itself, it just mind-boggled me to where I just want to want to study more and more and more and more and more. And when I realized that, I knew that I could be progressive once they let me out of prison. And I've been on that page ever since. Builders Liberation Schools has something has been something that has been going on since the 60s. It's what the Solidad Brothers initiated um, when they discovered Black August, where the month of August we fully dedicate ourselves to studying and practicing our ancestral cultural ways. And what you do is basically from your, your studies and your and, and the books that you read, you give those history lessons to a lot of other youngsters. Wake them up, so to speak, to keep their mind off the materialistic things that are going on out there. And when you do that, when, when you see that they're more interested in those history lessons and they can retain some of that information in those books, then you, you let them read some of them and you break them down. Show them the meaning and the purpose of that author and what he's saying so that they can implement it into their practices. So we'll start off with something small like George Jackson, Solidad Brother, his prison letters, how he was writing his family based on how his ideology had changed. Start off with the Black Panthers and what they did, what was the importance of the free breakfast program, how we build our own economy, which is socialism, an economy that helps the people and not hinders the people. Teach them about the American government and why they are a system of control with fascism means. Teach them economics so they can understand what capitalism is, what communism is, and, and what a self-governing organization is all about, you know? And we do it in small steps. I mean, it takes us maybe We'll study one book for about two and a half months. We'll study it, write essays on it, teach them the native language, Swahili, give them like seven words a week to study, show them how to use it in a in sentence. Make sure that when you break things down, they can not just retain it, but utilize it so they can help others as well. You know, it's been hard because of this COVID because we can't meet together on the yard or in the chapel when we have the space. So in each building, there's people who will implement them by bringing about four or three people to the table, keep six feet apart, and put a book down there and explain to them what the book is about, try to make copies of it so everybody can get their chance to read it, and then meet daily to discuss and dialogue the book, how well they're understanding it, what they think of it, how they, they feel like they can utilize what's, what's being spoken of in the book, and things like that, you know? It's like being in, in high school and in college 
and in the military all in one, you know, because it's, it's a learning process and anything that you learn, you can teach it. So, like I said, it's been a struggle to do all that since it's been COVID-19, but we're still trying, we're still finding ways to get things done in a progressive way. All of us who are already educated, who are already conscious, we already come out the sales like before we go to work or school or anything like that, meet up on the yard, no matter what tier it is, there's always a group. And we exercise and discuss what we're going to do for the week. That right there will draw attention, okay? And then when they see us out there studying and dialoguing and they want to come be a part of that, then we'll start giving them the history. That's some things that we learned, how we learned them, what made us want to be a part of that and to, to develop that consciousness. And when that secures their interest, then that's when we start, you know, giving them uh, certain books to read and study, check on them to see how well they're studying it, showing them how to take notes, telling them that we want to write a 150 words to want to work essay on this chapter so that we can see how well you retain this information. And that's basically how it starts. And from there, you get further deeper into it. The more you read and study and learn, the more you can practice it and utilize it and teach your loved ones in society. And then the latest thing we've been doing is, is building these liberation schools in society, in the community, and showing the community how to get active more, how to learn more, like the Black uh, Lives Matter movement. When it first started right here in California, some of those women were being reached out to by some comrades in here who were conscious, who had their ear letting them know, this is how you get set up as an organization. These are things that you do. You have to know how to attack the 1% class by building your own structure and taking care of people in the community. And you will discover talents that you didn't know you had, and then you just go from there. And how have your re-education efforts affected both camaraderie and organizing efforts amongst the prisoners? As far as, like, our growth and development on the inside, it gets expanded a lot more. Because I've, I've heard that a lot of us, well, in the other prisons, they've had a lot of success with educating the, the younger generation and pushing them when they get out, pushing them out there to join organizations that are community-based where they can assist the community with the things that they might need. So far, we haven't met any harassment unless it comes from staff, which knows that we're not going to stop on the inside. And little harassment is, you know, searching ourselves and stuff like that. You have 60 seconds remaining. You know, we can get that stuff back. But uh, it, this call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. It really creates a, a strong social environment because other ethnicities also are welcome to participate in our little group studies as well. Corcoran State Prison, first of all, if you, if you understand its dynamics, it's the first uh, prison where they have to shoot and they started the Gladiator Games. So Corcoran has gotten away with so many things that are unjust and against the Title 15, which is our Rules and Regulations Handbook, that we have to follow, as well as the conditions we have to challenge when they don't follow them. Um, Corcoran will tell you in a minute that they're not, they're not going to be up under those CDC guidelines. They're going to continue to do things the way they want to do it that makes it work. And it doesn't matter if they get penalized for it. So... You know, when I say Corcoran does what they want to do, it, it means just that. You know, if they want to lock the prison down, they'll make up a fictitious reason to do so, let Sacramento know they did it, so Sacramento can make a record of it, and they'll lock the prison down. If they want to not implement wage increases in case Sacramento says we're going to 
give inmates wage increases, Cork are going to say, no, we, we're not going to do that. You know, they just deliberately do things that cause problems. You know, it's like they try to continue to start division and uh, try to make us uncomfortable the best that they can. You know, it's, it seems like what they train new COs to do when the old COs who have moved up as far as they can move up in their little rankings start to retire. Can you talk a little bit about being present for some of Corcoran's infamous gladiator fights? Well, it, it was in the 80s. That's when they uh, they first did it. And because of all of it, they uh, let the public think that we were just these, you know, heinous people, these madmen that were just, you know, savages. And they used the taxpayers' money so they could build Pelican Bay State Prison, where they oppressed us even further, you know. But the gladiator fights was physical. You know, they opened doors for different racial groups and let them on the yard together knowing that they were going to, you know, have an altercation. And then they shot us, you know, killed a lot of people. They cell extracted people who didn't want to come in their cell and go to yards and, you know, attacked us, made us have to defend ourselves, you know, put trumped up charges on people who were defending their cells against their attacks, you know. And um, what they did was once it got out there to the public of what they were doing, and they got lawsuits, after which all they did was change it up and, and started, you know, psychological warfare with us, you know. They hog-tied people, put them in the cell for hours, you know, forcing them to urinate on themselves, refusing them medical attention, denying people's visits, stopping people's mail, saying that they were communicating, trying to perform gang hits and things of that nature. Uh, for a lot of us New Africans, taking our literature, saying it was gang-related material, so we couldn't continue our growth and development in conscious practices uh, from studying our ancestral ways. You know, just little, little things like that, you know, they did. Until you built up a tolerance to where as you can deal with it, not let it stop your growth or hinder your resolve and keep pushing. I've been in court for 16 years now. This is also my second stint here. When I was first put in court, it was when I was you know young, 17, 18, when I first came here on a shoot term and experienced some of the gladiator fights, which at the time being that I was young back then, it didn't really bothered me because I didn't understand the ramifications of it until I got older and came back to prison in, in 2005 and experienced it from the psychological standpoint. And I've been here since 2009. The ramifications that we had to deal with when I came back this time is the gang validation. Okay, from when I got out of prison in, in 1990, which I was uh, in the youth authorities where if you get too many level B, they'll send you to prison, they'll send you to, to Tracy, where it's like a gladiator. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. But associating with certain people can get you validated as a prison gang member. But what I didn't know is that for New Africans, us reading the historical materials that we read, like, a, you know, the struggles that went on with the Black Panther Party, as well as what was going on in Solidarity Prison and Folsom Prison, will get you validated as a gang member. And those are the ramifications that they continue to practice to this day until we had to have a, you know, a mass hunger strike, three of them actually, as well as file a lawsuit just to get out of the shoot. I didn't know that the agencies in prison also work with the agencies in society to watch over gang members and gang neighborhoods. You know, you didn't understand those dynamics at first until you, you know, sat down with older people who had been victims of that form of oppression and they were able to teach us that. So now we can see it from a, a wider angle lens, so to speak, you know, and, and understand its dynamics.
So you said in addition to the gladiator fights, Corcoran was the first to implement the SHU, the secure housing unit? Corcoran's SHU was first. Once they built the, the general population charge in Corcoran, which is, Corcoran is one of the new model prisons they started building in the 80s and 90s, they had the SHU units. A lot of people who had never been in general population before were in ADSEG, administrative segregation. And that's where they were first getting validated and getting sent. But in the ADSEG, you could still program like you on the main line. You still had your TV. You could still wear, you know, blues. You didn't have a jumpsuit. You weren't handcuffed. You still got to have group yard. You still was able to have contact visits. Things like that, you know, still had reading material. But once they built the shoe, they took all those things. And in the shoe, you were limited. You know, your canteen draw was only like $30. They took everything from its original context and put it in paper bags for like the cookies and chips that you could have and in little containers for like your cosmetics, your toothpaste, and your soap. And you couldn't have a lot of the stuff on the main, that you could have on the main line, like a sweatsuit and a beanie, some gloves or a tennis shoes, you know, things like that. You had your underwear, you had a jumpsuit. You had the little chap flap shoes that they wear you that could really mess your feet up, you know. So the, the shoe security housing unit is what they call it, um, was supposed to be a place for confinement, but not long term. You know, you had to do something against one of the rules in order to be placed in the shoe. But with the gang validation, it gives you an indeterminate shoe sentence. And that's when they started really enforcing those labels to the prison organizations that they had at that time. When I came back to prison in uh, 2005 and was placed in the shoe, we, we just, you know, a lot of people had been back there 30 years, some 40, some over 20. The thing was is that people started getting tired of it. They started talking amongst themselves and saying, hey, look, we need to come up with a strategy and a tactic so that we can get their attention to let them know that we need to get up out of here. Because every six years, when you see the committee board to get released, they were just denying people and saying, no, you're still participating in, in gang activity. And to them, gang activity was signing somebody's birthday card, you know, or, or giving somebody a, a book to read, you know. So the hunger strike was, was a way to get their attention. And we did it from in the shoe and reached out to loved ones. There was a general population through our outside loved ones to, to, to write back on the inside and tell them, hey, this is what we're going to do on this certain day and time. And we did that a couple times. And it brought the administration of CDC into the prison to talk to certain people who they considered group leaders. And we organized around that to get that going. And we came up with a list of demands for them to meet, saying that this is what we wanted. So they agreed to give us certain things in the shoe, like you can have more cosmetics, you can have these personal clothes now, you can have correspondence courses, but we're not letting you out. And the main objective was to get released from the shoe. So we had another hunger strike which was considered our two-year reunion after we built uh, pen pal organizations to correspond with others in society so they can get the word out. After we kept, you know, reaching out to other people who were activists and abolitionists in society who had a, a, an interest in prison conditions and uh, getting them involved, letting them know that, no, we want to be out of the shoe. We don't want to continue to be in the shoe with just special treatment. You know, we just kept building that momentum and had people calling up here, people being activists out there, getting more of the public to help us and, and work in solidarity with us to uh, go up to the governor's office and uh, get inside their ear and let them know, hey, look, it's time to let people out of there. They're suffering, you know? This is not an environment that's healthy, you know? So we ended up getting out of there. But a lawsuit was already started collectively as well after the second hunger strike with a lot of names on there as um, people challenging the condition through the courts in case they try to renege on letting us out. 
And once that got going, they tried to create a little makeshift program called the Step Down Program, where you go to committee and they put you on a certain step. You show them that you can program around other ethnicities in an open space, but still in a cage. You know, not like you know in, in a in a group where you can have social interaction. And we was like, no, we can do that on our own. We don't need this type of a program. So. When the lawsuit went through, that killed the step-down program, and they had to let us out. And so far, we've been, uh, you know, ending, you know, all hostilities, or attempting to end all hostilities, which was the last thing we said we were going to, we wanted to get out to do. And, you know, and that allowed us to continue to build these schools of liberation where we can teach cultural studies, social studies, um, psychology, teach this young generation about the law so they can challenge conditions that they may be faced with, and things of that nature. Because there's a lot more other racial groups that have came into prison. And this new generation, a lot of them don't know about the prison struggle. So we're, we're having to reteach them. And the first question that arises is, how did we maintain so long in solitary confinement? And I wrote a couple of essays called Surviving Solitary Confinement. And one of the ways in which a lot of us New Africans survived, it was by transforming our minds from criminals into revolutionaries. And you do that by eradicating the backwards and un the backwards ways of thinking and the unprogressive behaviors that you had as colonial subjects growing up in the inner city. And when we study our history, we learn that that's how we functioned in Africa so long ago. You know, we each had, uh, we come from cultures, we spoke a certain language, we had a certain religion or certain religious beliefs that we practiced, you know, and we utilized that to teach others, along with other things that we learned, like philosophy. You know, Karl Marx, when he broke down the best theory of using dialectical materialism to analyze anything so that you can face those situations and challenge those conditions to win, it allows you to, to see how to do that. And for us, creating self-governing organizations, creating abolitionist movements, creating our own newsletters and, and websites, anything that we don't have to rely on the government to do for us, we do for ourselves, is the best practice that we uh, that, that we see working for us going forward. And other ethnicities... You have 60 seconds remaining. When they study their cultural practice, they see the need for the same. And that brings more solidarity work. You know, to my understanding, it, it, it's being a productive thing throughout the prisons, although there is little problems here and there that can still be ironed out. But it's work in progress. And uh, I feel hopeful that going forward, we'll still have a, a lot more production. Emolimo will be back on the show to read one of his essays about surviving the isolation in the shoe on a later episode. You can hear previous episodes we've aired about the gladiator fights and also about solitary confinement on our new searchable website, kitelineradio.org. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. Please keep sharing the number for our coronavirus hotline. We'll continue to air messages from prisoners who call in from the inside and family members calling in for support for their loved ones. You can call in on behalf of a loved one or they can call in to record their message about the impact of the coronavirus on their facility at 765-343-6236. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash kiteline. 
You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. For more information on the stories we air on KiteLine, check out kitelineradio.org. We also want your feedback and to share your story. Feel free to write us at kiteline at wfhb.org. If you want to support our work, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash kiteline radio show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.